I never think of myself as an old lady, but working at the food bank two weeks ago with two young men, 13 and 15, and I am used to grabbing whatever I need, and their box is quite heavy, but I can manage. And one kid said to the other, go help that old lady over there. And I thought, oh my gosh, he thinks I'm an old lady. Peg McLaughlin is anything but your average 93-year-old. If you were to follow her around for a week, from volunteering at the food bank to going on senior trips, you might guess she was two decades younger. But in spite of her outward physical and mental vitality, Peg has complex, overlapping medical problems renal failure, mysterious abdominal pain, and hearing loss, just to name a few. As she's aged, Peg has struggled to find doctors who take her seriously. With geriatric patients, medical conditions aren't the only thing doctors must consider. Today, you'll hear Peg, her daughter Margie, and her geriatrician, Dr. Lynn McNichol, discuss holistic care, ageism, and independence as it applies to taking care of a geriatric population. I'm Viknesh Kasturi. And I'm Alex Homer. And this is Back of the Chart. One of the big things for me was um, I'm I'm very uh, interested in a more holistic approach. So I had been begging my mom to switch doctors for a long time because um, something would happen or she'd get sick. And same with my dad. And they'd zero in on like one tiny part of their body and um, kind of dismiss the other 70 things that were going on usually as a result of whatever crisis either one of them were in. And so having somebody who gets the whole picture is looking uh, way beyond whatever the problem, you know, looking at it from a holistic perspective. And that's what Lynn brings to the party. So it was it was great and what a difference in healthcare it's not an uncommon story that we hear from peg that their primary care doctor is either out of touch with what their goals are they're focused too much on the little details about what's happening and not looking at the global picture um, and they're not feeling that they're being listened to uh, or that their overall approach to their care is well handled. Uh, I mean, once you get into your 90s, and and Peg is is wonderful. She's vibrant. She's healthy. Um, she's uh, social, but she has lots of medical conditions. And when things go bad, they can potentially go very bad, they go very, very quickly, bad, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Um, geriatricians pride themselves in thriving in this kind of complexity. We love the challenge. And if you're the type of person who loves the challenge of taking care of complex people with a lot of ambiguity and not a lot of medical literature to back you up, you can be a geriatrician too. I often think of being a geriatrician as as having double vision. So you have to be very detail-oriented, but you always have to have that um, 60,000-foot outlook. So you you have to think of, what am I missing? What are the things I need to be paying attention to? Is this drug causing the problem that we're seeing? 
What did we do three months ago that is now causing a problem? What did we not do three months ago that might have been the problem? Or, you know, what does she want? What does Peg want? How much more does Peg want us to do? How much would Peg want us to do if this test came back positive? Or if we went down this road, is this the road that she wants us to go? So it's always uh, a lot of shared decision-making with the patient, but also with the family, because sometimes they know things that the patient might not be willing to share openly or willingly, or um, that um, they might have known historically. My mom is fiercely independent, and we, my brothers and I frequently will say, hey, why don't you let us help you out with that? Uh, 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 no, you won't be doing any shopping for me. I need to carry those bags. I watch my friends, and they let everybody do everything for them, and look at them. (laughs) (laughs) So she has to carry those grocery bags, even if it means that she has to go back and forth from the the trunk of the car three times with two bags. Um, She... She has to do it, and and she she will give us a slap if we <laughs> if we intervene. No, I feel you should do for yourself what you can do as long as you can. Then ask for help. I can only say that I've always liked being with people, and having five children, I've been always active in Girl Scouts and. The boys have all been in sports, so I've always followed my kids when they were taking part in whatever activity they had. And so um, as years went on, I just found that I was helping this person or that person. She is my role model. <laughs> she's she's what I want to be like when I'm 93. My mom was saying she was a little short of breath, and so uh, my, uh, you know, any place else in the world, they would have said, and and she's often had it happen. And people kind of give you this polite smile and go, "Well, you are 93," like like that's an excuse for <laughs> for. Any any kind of thing going wrong. And Lynn said to my mom, oh, no. She says, look at you. You work at the food bank. You go on these trips. We got we to gotta look into that. Let's, let's, let's be sure that you're breathing as, as best as you possibly can. And let's do everything we can to make you be able to breathe really well. And there wasn't really anything remarkable other than knowing my mom and knowing how active she is and not dismissing her because she's 93. She's she's more active than people my age. She's out every day. She's got 100 volunteer jobs. Uh, she's always helping out with all different things. So she's not some old lady, <laughs> you know? She's she's the, like this remarkable human being. And Lynn gets that and um, makes sure that uh, she brings my mom like right up to the height, the very optimum that my mom can breathe or walk or whatever. She She's great and reminded me, you know, the grocery bag story is funny, but she reminds me that she's trying to be independent. I'm struck by how our attitudes towards death change with age. Consider this, if, God forbid, you had a heart attack today, would you want to be resuscitated? If you're young, or young at heart, odds are you'd say yes. But what if resuscitation meant putting a breathing tube in your throat? 
or being confined to a hospital bed for the rest of your days. What if you're 93 years old? Maybe your answer might change. Maybe not. But we're prone to avoid the question of inevitable demise. It's scary and uncomfortable, and there's so much time left to worry about it. But in working with a geriatric population, asking these difficult questions now is imperative to easing the aging process and making sure next of kin don't have to face impossible questions by their lonesome. She had gotten really sick and uh, um, her kidneys weren't working and uh, she had gone into renal failure. And the doctor said to her, um, it's time to talk about going on dialysis. And she said, oh, 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 we're not going to have any of that. And um, he said, you know, do you know what that means? And she says, oh, by all means. <laughs> she says, I'm not going to be like my friends and lay around on the couch for the next six months and waiting to die. She says, I'd just as soon go now. It was good. Everything's been good. <laughs> At my age, I have many, many friends that have had dialysis. They all end up in nursing homes. And right now, I have two particular friends, and I love them dearly. But they have to go three times a week. They go on dialysis. By the time she gets, either one of them get to the nursing home, they are completely exhausted. Mm. And the next day, if I go to see them, they are so tired. They do not want to come out to lunch, which they always had wanted to come with us. They do not really want you to visit them that long. They love to see you, but make it short. And that's not the way I want to live. Uh, my husband was very, very ill. And when it came time to make a decision it was Maggie, my daughter Mary, who's a nurse practitioner, myself, were on one page, where my brother and my two sons, just emotionally involved, could not agree with us on what we wanted done for him. So when I was sick last time, I said to Maggie, I am going to write what I want, and I want you to make sure that's carried out. But what I did was I wrote a letter to each one of my five children telling them what I wanted, and I do not want any resuscitation. I do not want any feeding tube. I just want to be able to go to the end of my journey. And I did not want them to feel bad that I was departing from this earth, but I wanted them to follow my instructions. And I mailed each one of them a letter and told them to keep it a handy and to remember that and not to give Maggie, who has power of attorney. I did not want them to give her a hard time. Writing up a durable power of attorney and a living will is providing a gift to the person who's going to be making that decision so that they don't have PTSD, and uh, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, so in case they are ever in a position to be making those decisions, there are terrible decisions to be making. People 
have a huge amount of difficulty making those decisions. And then when the person, uh, should they die, um, if they weren't at peace with that decision, they suffer months, years, decades afterwards. And you can hear people saying, when my dad died, you know, everybody was struggling and -and so-and-so didn't make it, uh, didn't deal with it very well. Whereas my goal is to make sure that not only does she not suffer or lives the maximum life and the best quality of life, but also that the family members don't suffer in her suffering, but also in her death, that they are completely at peace with um, her death and that um, they can move on with their life knowing that she lived the fullest life possible. That's ultimately my goal. Her average life expectancy at 93 is three to five years at most. Um, and she might be a centenarian. We'd love for you to be a centenarian. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I Not an unusual response. <laughs> at my age, I call it the age of saying goodbye. And it's not unusual to go to two funerals in a week. And it's especially because of my closest friends. They're all in their 90s. And it's something we all expect. I never worry about it. At my age, I live one day to the other. And I get up in the morning and I thank God every day and I just look forward to the next day. But if it wasn't to happen, it's okay. Because of all of her uh, colon surgeries, there's a lot of scar tissue that can develop. And so she probably had some scar tissue and part of her bowel got stuck between some scar tissue. And what what we were hypothesizing was that it was partially obstructing. So things were moving, but not well. So it was backing up. It was making her nauseous. It was not allowing her to eat because anything she would come in would have to go through. And um, But when they did the CAD scans, it didn't show. And sometimes that can be true because unless you get a full blockage, sometimes you don't see uh, it perfectly well on the CAT scan. Uh, you heard her. She doesn't want dialysis. But if you're in pain and you're uncomfortable and you could theoretically fix something quickly, you know, have a surgery, get it, wham, bam, you're done. We can get you out of surgery in a couple of days out of the hospital. You go home and you you can eat. Um, then we, we kind of have to have a risk-benefit discussion, which is what we had over several weeks of trying to figure this out and speaking with the surgeons and trying to collaborate with the surgeon who were not very anxious <laughs> to do any kind of surgery. And part of that was me trying to convince them that she was worth having surgery on, that her not every 93-year-old is created equal, and we need to take into consideration um, not just her age, but how functional she is and what her quality of life is. And that had been at this, such a relatively high level that just dismissing her need for surgery just because of her age, um, you know, it could be considered ageist. The other doctor was like, yeah, 93-year-olds, we don't do that. 
and Lynn Lynn was a total advocate for my mother and says you don't understand you have to you have to see her in action and um, really put the heavy press on the the surgeon to really uh, consider over time it gradually uh, it went away um, so it can unlock like things will just move around I mean you think you know things move and the bowels so things move around and um, it became unplugged yeah, I mean, we, we kind of got a bit lucky, yeah. to be honest, because you didn't need surgery and we didn't need, it didn't come to that point, yeah. but we came very oh, close man. to we're needing right surgery. You were losing weight precipitously, yeah. and it's not healthy weight. When older people lose weight fast, they lose, they lose muscle. So they're not, she's not losing any of her fat. <laughs> she's losing mostly <laughs> muscle. And when older people lose muscle, lose weight quickly, they lose their muscle, they increase risk of falling. And so it becomes a vicious cycle and you, you could start the beginning of the end, which we often see. They get an illness, they lose weight, they lose muscle mass, they fall, they break a hip, they can't walk anymore, they end up in a nursing home and they die. I'd like the medical students and future doctors to view older people who aren't able to communicate as well as Peg, who aren't able to speak for themselves, who might not even have family members who are there to be able to speak for them on their behalf, to think of those people not in the way that you're seeing them in front of you, which might be a very frail, dilapidated, cacactic, I try not to think of them that way. I try to think of them as who they were when they were at their best. What, what were they like when they were 20, 15 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old? What was, what was that whole life trajectory? What could they have been? And what did their, because that's what their family typically sees. They don't see the person in front of you. They see who they were at their best, at their most. And um, it's really easy to just view them as the person you see right now. It's hard to think of them as who they were. And if you think of them as who they were, you, you can see them more as a person rather than the shell of a person that they are in front of you. The most important thing, I think, is doing something that you have passion for. And that's what I advise the medical students and residents. Find something that you have passion, because that's what gets you up in the morning. That's what gets you through the day. That's what gets you through working overnight or through the weekend or missing many family events and holidays because you're on call. That's what gets you through year after year. Um, and medical students and residents, I think they think in the short term. They think, let me just get through medical school. Let me get, just get through internship. Let me just get through residency. And really, you need to think 20 years from now. Will I still want to be doing this 20 years from now? Will I still have the passion and the ability to be caring towards my patients 20 years from now? And if you can say yes to that, then that's what you should be pursuing. If other determinants are leading you to in, in a path, then that's probably not the right path. You need to feel like this is your passion, this is your calling. Medicine is not a job. 
It's not a nine to five job. It's a calling, it's a profession. And in order to do that job well and to do it in a healthy manner for yourself and for your your patients, you need to, to know that you're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing something that you love to do. We'd like to thank Dr. McNichol, Peg, and Margie for sharing their story with us. And we'd like to thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please make sure you subscribe wherever you're listening right now. And if you love this episode, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It helps new listeners find the show. Next time, we have a fascinating story about what it's like when a provider finds himself on the other side of the journey. Backlight Chart is executive produced and hosted by Alex Homer and Viknesh Kasturi. Our producer is Sierra Fang Horvath. Our editor is Nehal Mukherjee. Our patient liaison is John Lin. Our graphics are designed by Juliana Kim. The music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to faculty and staff at Brown University for making this possible.